We start the show talking about what the Prime Minister said earlier today, as well as Public Safety Minister Bill Blair speaking at that news conference, talking about people who decide they want to keep those weapons that will be and are prohibited. Under our legislation, current owners of these weapons will be required to comply with strict new regulations, which will effectively eliminate all legal use of these firearms by private owners. That means that private owners would not be able to legally use, transport, sell, transfer, or bequeath any of those guns. So we are joined now by Daniel Fritter. He is the owner of Caliber, which is Canada's largest gun magazine. Daniel, thanks so much for making some time with us today. No problem. Glad to be on the show again. Uh, what are your thoughts on what you've heard both from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and from Bill Blair today? Uh, actually, I think the most interesting thing about the comments today, because we've known this was coming, uh, I guess they rumored this last week. It was about Wednesday, I think, when rumors started to break that something was going to come on Tuesday. Um, and that timeline, that's when the timeline starts. That gets interesting because IBM was given the contract uh, by the federal government and public safety to draw up, uh, to come up with the, the concept of the buyback program, the very foundation of it. Um, their report only was remitted to government um, by Monday. So last Monday, they, they received this initial report, and in the course of a week, they've managed to go from this initial report, um, which was a few hundred thousand dollars contract, to apparently we're supposed to believe fully-fledged legislation that reaches into the Nuclear Safety Act and the Immigration Act as well, and further to the timeline story, um, we're expected to believe that this could pass with the 55 days remaining for parliamentary sessions before the summer break, when there's supposed to be an election slated for June or the fall at the latest. I mean, Bill C-71 was a, compared to this, was was nothing for firearms legislation. It was fiddling with the margins. This is an Australian-scale buyback. Um, Bill C-71 passed in a majority government without a pandemic and took 350 or so calendar days, roughly 180 parliamentary days to pass. Um, If we're going to an election inside of 50 or 60 parliamentary days, there's no chance this passes. Uh, So it just looks like more political theater. Well, and certainly that's been one of uh, the criticisms of this is that the government wasn't doing so well on vaccine rollout, so uh, looked for the low-hanging fruit to change the channel. Yeah, and I think we've seen those. <clears throat> to me, you know, I, I had a, my first child last year recently, and, um, you know, it's kind of changed the perspective. And what I find really reprehensible is that, you know, we've known for a long time that this is a common channel change tactic. We talked about it on the show when, when they did this in May 1st. Um, that I think that time it was about the Wii scandal that was breaking, and we then the gun ban came out, and, and we're seeing the vaccine delays, and then this comes out. But what, what really gets to me is it's the recent headlines of, of young people that have been killed in gang shootings that inspires this kind of politicking. And I really wish that people would kind of understand that our government does have within their ability <clears throat> the capacity to reduce gang homicides. They absolutely could do it because globally there are best practices that we could put in place we could hire more police officers we could hire more outreach get a mental health get a mental health system stood up because we don't have one in this country any of those things would lead to massive reductions in overall untimely deaths be it from opioids or guns it doesn't matter Uh, but they don't pursue that instead they pursue this and i it's getting to the point where i just wish people would look at it and say someone is sitting at a room in the government and they watch a 14-year-old get shot and they make the call that the best thing they should do is try and get votes with it. And it breaks my heart. Like, it really does to think that that's happening at the highest levels of government here. 
it, it certainly does, and it, and it once again brings up the conversation about where where the focus is. And you've kind of touched on this: the focus being on is it once again going after legal, law-abiding gun owners, people who own these different styles of guns, keep them locked, follow the rules, uh, go through a criminal record check by the RCMP every day, and are monitored because they've gone through the process of getting a license. Uh, well, at the same time, it seems to be ignoring the criminals who are the ones who are engaged in these shootings and the ones that are costing people their lives. There was anecdotally, there was a police uh, raid just in my block here in Kelowna, uh, just a few streets over. They raided a drug lab that had guns in the house, um, illegally possessed, smuggling. I don't know where they came from. Um, my guns, on the other hand, are, are kept in a 3,000 pound safe inside an alarmed house with video cameras. The guns that he's banning will, will be removed from that 3,000 pound safe that is covered by cameras in an alarmed house. The meth lab won't matter. I think if you were to find a criminal on the street, if you were to ask the average gun owner that's engaged in the shooting hobby actively, like they shoot as a sport, they would be able to tell you all of the guns were banned on May 1st. If you find someone in lockup for the distribution of drugs who was arrested with a gun, I don't think they could tell you that there was a gun ban passed on May 1st. And I think that that right there is the testament. I mean, I'm sitting here doing interviews about how this is affecting my life, how it's impacted my business, how it's it's literally taking thousands of dollars of things that I've owned, things that were passed down to me through family members and saying that, well, you can legally keep this, but you can't do anything with it. And then when you die, you can't pass this to my son. So the guns that were passed down through, through generations now will end based on what Justin Trudeau says. But again, 55 days left in Parliament, this will not pass. There is no chance that a bill this size, I mean, you're talking a cast of probably 4,000 people mobilizing in Ottawa to get this going, between parliamentary secretaries, legal experts, 338 MPs, 105 senators, and the staffs thereof, plus the committees. I said earlier, I think if if the government was to make this happen within 55 days, if they were to commit to it and say, we are going to make this a law before we drop the writ, I would look at them and say that's negligent because you need to be concentrating on other stuff right now. That's simply the the case. So I just don't see a world in which this happens, but it's still frustrating that it's even a thing that they talk about. Uh, so are you concerned about the, the, I don't even like calling it a buyback because it suggests that they paid for them in the first place. But what, what do you do then if you own guns that are on that list that then would be part of this voluntary buyback? What do you do? My personal recommendation would be to take comfort from the fact that there is an amnesty until 2022 and do nothing. Uh, at this stage, the government's buyback is so not fleshed out. I mean, like I said, the IBM proposal was delivered two days beforehand. And to put in perspective, that proposal, that was a five-week contract award that resulted in that preliminary report. That preliminary report was supposed to be covered by an additional two-year contracted period during which IBM was supposed to create the actual buyback infrastructure. So we're five weeks into a process the government has already said was going to take two years. So there's no way that we could actually say what you should do. What Like, if the government was offering me a million dollars for one of my AR-15s that I paid $3,000 for, yes, I would take the million dollars and pay off my mortgage. But, you know, we don't know what the numbers are. We don't know what the process is. And to be honest, we don't even know if this government is going to be enacting this buyback. Because, I mean, if, if things go differently, if vaccines don't arrive, and we do go to the election come June or the fall at the latest, um, we need this government to come back, and then we would need them to table legislation again because of this legislation wouldn't survive the writ. Uh, and without knowing what that looks like, it's impossible to tell people what to do. So I would simply say, just wait, just wait, see what they're doing, see how things shake out, give everything a chance to settle. You know, this announcement today is just 
it's the beginning of a campaign more than it is governance. Uh, so, so take it for what it is. Uh, would you say the same then as well? One of the other big announcements today, or, or the, re- the repeating, uh, we, we knew this was coming as well, was giving cities and municipalities uh, the power if they want to bring in bylaws. Uh, I mean, that raised a bunch of questions for me. One being, how would your local municipal politicians know that you had handguns, unless the RCMP is going to start sharing that information? But what do you say to people then that are concerned about that? Again, I would just say wait. Um you know, I know Kennedy Stewart wants to jump all over this. I would counsel Kennedy Stewart to wait a little bit because this is going to be fraught with legal challenges. Um, I mean, I know a few constitutional lawyers that have repeatedly said that this constitutionally, um, the federal government trying to bestow powers upon municipalities to give by law the ability to, to instill, as according to the government, strict enough penalties, including jail time. So now you consider Vancouver bylaw officers are able to put people in jail. That's that's a complete, that, that's that's like saying your accountant could put someone in jail. It's a whole different role, you know. So, um, and I think that also is a testament to the fact that I don't think the Trudeau Liberals actually intend this legislation to go anywhere. I think that they want us to introduce it. I think that they'll put it through the first reading like they have. And I think it might even see a second reading just to keep the ball rolling and keep it believable. But there's terms in this legislation, including there's there's portions of it in the summary that refer to public officers being able to be armed. There's, a, there's an amendment in here saying that that it will allow the governor and council, which is the minister of public safety, to determine that public staffers, employees of the crown, can carry any firearm for their personal protection. It is a component of this law. Now, public officers are not technically a legal term. There's There are peace officers. That's what police officers are. They can normally carry a gun. Public officers, that's not a thing that's normally armed in Canadian culture. Um, the, the municipal ban... I don't actually think legally they can do it, but I think they put the terminology in here knowing that the legislation will never get royal assent. So ultimately, it it can be right, it can be wrong, it doesn't matter. It just has to make the headlines for today so that the vaccine headlines get pushed off for a day or two. All right, uh, Daniel, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always good to talk with you. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. We have been talking about the announcement, the re-announcement, much of it earlier today involving the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, talking about more details about the assault-style gun buyback program, also reiterating that the federal government wants to give the power to civic governments if they want to bring in their own gun ban. A lot of people saying this is nothing more than a channel changer. There simply isn't enough time to even get this done. And this is simply a way for the current federal government to take some of the pressure off the criticism over vaccine rollout. Well, my next guest is an associate professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley and Hamish Telford joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome, Jill. Uh, What is your response? How do you uh, sum up the announcement today? Well, uh, the Liberals have being concerned about gun control for a long time. We've been having this debate in Canada for more than 30 years, going back to the École Polytechnique massacre in, in Montreal. Of course, uh, Jean Chrétien's uh, scheme um, didn't pan out very well, the long gun registry, which was eventually scrapped uh, by the Conservatives. Now Justin Trudeau is trying it again with a more targeted program, just looking at the so-called assault-style weapons. And uh, we will see if this one is effective. We still don't have a lot of the details. You know, are is the, the buyback prices that the government's going to offer be sufficient to entice gun owners uh, to turn in their weapons and get their money back? Um, we, we, we're still waiting for the details and, and of that. Um, 
we don't really know how many weapons are out there. So even at the after a certain amount of time, we really won't know how effective it is. And of course, criminals won't turn in the weapons at all. So uh, a lot of unknowns, uh, really, with this legis- proposed legislation. What are your thoughts on the idea of a voluntary buyback and giving people the option of either uh, once you kind of know those details, uh, making that decision, do you want to participate in this or uh, do you want to keep uh, the gun, make it so it can't work, lock it up and never bequeath it to anyone? Yeah, I think that that is perhaps the right balance um, to sort of um, force people to give up their weapons that they really don't want to give up uh, would, I think, create more political blowback and more headaches. Um, and so this is the way to, to do it, again, if the prices are, are right and people are, are going to see that this is, if they want to recuperate the money that they spent on acquiring the Roathens, this will be their one and only opportunity to do it. And it's, it's modeled on programs that we've seen in Australia and New Zealand. We can debate the effectiveness of the programs there, but that's the approach that the government is following. When you talk about that, though, and that's that's certainly what a lot of people have been been focusing on, the fact that, like you said, criminals are not going to participate in this. Criminals are going to continue breaking the law. That's what makes them criminals. So how, how effective is a program like this if the goal is to cut down on crime? Well, again, when we're looking at assault-style weapons versus handguns, we've got, I think, two, two separate issues. But um, we have seen... A, um, crimes, mass murders with uh, legally purchased assault-style weapons in Canada. Um, So one presumes that this will be effective in reducing those crimes, although they don't happen uh, frequently. Um, The handgun ban, that's that's a whole other issue of how this is going to work. The federal government is trying to enable cities to enact bans, even though it has the full power to do so itself. That is really I think, a very weak measure where the government is trying to avoid political, uh, a political price. Right. So how would that even work, do you think? Or, or how would that play out if we're, we're suddenly giving that power to cities and some mayors have already come out saying that they would like to bring in a, a handgun ban in their city? Uh, do we then see the RCMP handing over uh, information about gun owners? Because how else, first off, how else would civic governments even know who is in their city and who owns a handgun? The, the, the complexities of this deal are mind-boggling to me, um, and and you've got issues of nearby adjacent cities. So we've got Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond, Surrey, Abbotsford, Langley, all trying to do this or not do this in some cases. Um, the complexity of it is mind-boggling, and and it would be um, much more straightforward if the federal government introduced it has the power to introduce whatever limitations it wants. Uh, on, with respect to handguns, and it would be uh, much easier if they did that. We have seen some mayors, I read last week, the mayor of Montreal uh, was speaking out and pushing the federal government to take a stronger lead on this because it's bound to be a very messy outcome, uh, leaving it to municipalities. And even if they, we don't even know if municipalities have the capacity to do it. Uh, do we also know, as far as I understand, there, there's the ongoing debate on where the, the guns are coming from. Are they being smuggled in from the United States? Are they being domestically sourced? And uh, there seem to be different numbers out there. Uh, there are several reports, though, within the last few years of RCMP saying we don't actually keep that information. We don't have a database about that information. So how do we figure out or, or you would think if the, if the goal then is to ban a handgun, to ban handguns, because they're being domestically sourced and used in crimes. Do we not need data to, to back that up? Data would certainly be helpful. <laughs> um, and we know, but we, I think we know that a lot of the, 
the sort of crime that the street crime that we have seen um, recently, we can presume that that is largely with uh, smuggled weapons, smuggled handguns rather than uh, legally purchased handguns. There are going to be some legally purchased handguns that are stolen, but I think the numbers that we're talking about there are relatively small. Um, and part of the announcement today was to to step up um, laws on smuggling, um, to have stronger um, um, terms of prison terms for, for drugs or gun smuggling, as well as to increase border security resources to try and stem that problem. Um, but um, we're, we're a bit all over the map with, in terms of <laughs> the information we're working with. Uh, do you think that that is something? I mean, does it does it score more political points? Do, does a, par, a governing party look like they're doing more uh, when they make announcements like they did today, rather than I think in the past we've seen was it Bill C two thirty eight that was about stiffened penalties for gun smugglers? Does it because that doesn't get the headlines as much or doesn't get enough attention? Why we don't see as much talked about about that? Yeah, the Liberals have got a real predicament here. Uh, the Liberals' base of support now is in the big urban centres, particularly Montreal and Toronto, to a certain extent Vancouver, and other cities in the country. And there is real concern about gun crime uh, in the cities, There's um, and people are not, generally speaking, hunters, so they're not really concerned about long guns uh, either. And they want action on this front. On the other hand, rural voters... Um, who are much more likely to be hunters, uh, worry that their weapons for legitimate hunting purposes will be next on the list if a government introduces tighter restrictions. So that's the needle that liberals are trying to, to thread. And so they want to be seen to be doing action to appease uh, urban voters while not alienating rural voters. And it, it may just end up that they satisfy nobody. Right, which is really unfortunate and and kind of sad when you think about it, when the whole purpose for this is whether we're talking about Surrey or Vancouver or Montreal, Toronto, we're talking about the crimes that have been commissioned, people who have been injured or lost their lives. And if the whole point is to reduce crime, but instead we just see all this political posturing, I mean, who wins? Yeah, one has to hope that they will do a better job of implementing whatever you know, the, the policies that they're bringing forth today than they did with the long gun registry, that they get a better buy-in from, from gun owners, get better compliance uh, with it, and that this will provide a, a modicum of, of safety. Of course, it's not going to eliminate crime, um, but it, it may make us a bit safer. And if, if it does do that in the long run, then I, I think we're moving in the right direction. But of course, we're not going to have those answers for some years. All right. Uh, Hamish Telford, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on the show. You're welcome, Jill. We are continuing uh, to talk about the announcement made earlier today, talking about gun regulation in this country. And we've also been hearing from Canada's emergency physicians saying they are disappointed in the announcement earlier. And this is in respect to one part of legislation called red flag laws. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Alan Drummond, co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Public Affairs Committee. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, what are your concerns about that part of the regulation? Right. Um, so right from the get-go, the conversation in this morning's press conference was all about crime and crime control. And that's sort of been the way the debate in Canada has gone for close to three decades now, uh, getting criminals uh, off the streets, getting guns off the street. But the reality 
from a public health perspective is that 75% of all gun deaths in Canada are actually due to suicide. Um, and so we've always said that there needs to be more of a public health focus on reducing gun injury and deaths. Uh, crime is important. Obviously, Canadians are concerned about that. But if we want to reduce the, the tragic toll of gun deaths in Canada, we have to focus on, on suicides. Uh, we know that uh, suicide is an impulsive act. Uh, and uh, with the decision to you know, pull a trigger, uh, with usually within an hour of, the, of that actual uh, act taking place. Uh, and we also know that a gun in a home uh, puts uh, an individual uh, at a five times greater risk of, uh, of, of a, of a f- fatal gun suicide than in a home that doesn't have a gun. And so uh, for a number of years, since 1995 actually, we have been uh, calling for uh, a, a law which would allow physicians uh, the ability to contact police in this circumstance where we see somebody in the middle of the night with either uh, suicidal thoughts or uh, untreated delusional psychoses or somebody who's involved in a domestic violence situation, uh, somebody who's considering a mass shooting, to be able to call the police. And while we seek to get that individual help in terms of psychological assessment, treatment, um, settling down the crisis, just get the guns from the, from the home until such time as they are uh, more in control uh, and uh, their families are safer. So we had a lot of hope when Bill Blair a couple of years ago uh, came out of the blue and sort of said he was going to consider a red flag law. Um, the problem is that we wanted something nimble and clinically responsive to the needs of the emergency physician and nurse in the middle of the night. What he's done is called or for the adoption of the American Extreme Risk Protection Orders, which allows the citizen to petition the court to have the guns removed. Well, we already have that law, in essence, uh, in Canada. Anybody can call the 1-800 you know, number for the chief firearms officer and outline a concern. And so having to go through a court process, especially when courts are overcrowded, difficult to access, a lot of people don't have the literacy uh, to deal with that, uh, means that we're going to be sending people home to uncertain situations for days or weeks. And we were sort of thinking more in the terms of hours. Uh, so as it stands right now with the current laws, if an emergency physician encounters somebody and that physician thinks this person is suicidal or if this person is putting somebody else at risk, what powers do they have? Well, usually if it's frank suicidal thought, like there's a plan and, and, and we know they have access to firearms, that's pretty straightforward because we end up committing them under the Mental Health Act for uh, assessment and treatment. The problem is that for you know every one person who comes in with a definitive plan, there are dozens more who come in with just a thought process. Uh, and we can't notify the police under those circumstances. Uh, so there's also a, like a calculated risk, uh, like a risk assessment of what's going to happen when we send them home. And we do send them home. And, and, and every emergency physician in this country could probably tell you a story of the person that they sent home who ultimately went home and, and killed themselves. And so that's the problem is, is not so much the one with the clear plan or the clear threat, but the one who uh, may be at risk uh, of uh, unintended consequences if they have access to the firearms. So we don't, when we send them home at three o'clock in the morning, we don't know if we're sending them home to a loaded shotgun under the bed or a, an arsenal in their basement. We just don't know. And so, so I have something a bit more direct and, and interventional right from the get-go. Until we can get the situation assessed and under control would have been our, our preferred option. 
And when you talk about that, the number, the five times greater risk, and and I don't mean for this to sound cold at all, but I'm curious if somebody is intent on uh, taking their life, if somebody is 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 intent on suicide, uh, how do we know then that that if the the gun being there or access to a firearm uh, does does increase that risk rather than if they have that intent, do they not go and if there's no access to a firearm, uh, go about some other way? So, you know, that's a great question, and that's the one that the people in the pro-gun lobby like to sort of point out. But the reality of it is this, and I think it'll be surprising to many of your listeners, that of the people who fail on their initial attempt to commit suicide, fully 90% of them are alive five years later. So this concept of substituting method just isn't held up uh, in, a, in a psychiatric literature. So that's the first thing. So if you if you take a less lethal means and you survive then there's a 90% chance that five years later, live, you'll be alive later, and your, your crisis will have passed, and you will go on to a productive life. Equally important is the lethality of the weapon. So if you, if you choose any other method of, of suicide, you stand about a 90%, overall, about a 90% chance of surviving that, that, that attempt. If you put a gun to your head, you have a 90% chance of, of, of dying, probably even a little bit higher than that. So uh, while we talk about the need for increased access to mental health resources, we also notice in the medical literature and the concept of of means restriction and reducing the the lethality of the means available. So you take pills, you you stand about a 3% chance of dying. You put a gun to your head, you're practically 100% dead. Are are there any concerns when it comes to uh, when if somebody is in the ER or if it's if it's a a case of of somebody who who may be a potential uh, have a partner who's potentially violent? Are there concerns at all that if then the laws were changed or or if uh, the police were uh, were notified, uh, the guns, the the firearms were removed from the house? Is there there? I I think I, I mean, I've heard the argument before that then there is there then there is concern that it's all based on one person perception, maybe one emergency room physician, and then it becomes a huge battle to either get the firearm back to prove you're kind of guilty until proven innocent. Well, I think the, I think the focus of, uh, of any extreme risk protection order should not be one of, you know, criminality uh, and c- convicting, be- you know, before you even get to sort of be involved in the legal process. It's just, it's one of prevention. All we're trying to do here, uh, or at least all we had hoped would be embodied in this bill, uh, is the opportunity to prevent a crime from happening. There is so much discussion here about urban gangs and whether it's you know gang shootings in Surrey or gang shootings in downtown Toronto that the big picture has been entirely missed, which is most most deaths are, are most firearm deaths are from suicide. There's a significant number, not an insignificant number, from uh, domestic violence. And all we're trying to do here is is, is shift the focus a little bit to say, uh, you know. There's another component here beyond, and 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 beyond this is not necessarily tied directly to violence. That would be another myth that goes around. What we're trying to do is uh, prevent. Um, what we tend to see more often is is inappropriate, aggressive behavior, which affects about ten percent of the population, where somebody gets you know loses their head, gets angry, uh, and then pulls the trigger. And so, you know, the domestic homicide is a homicide, but if the person hadn't had access to a gun, hadn't gotten upset, hadn't pulled the trigger, then it never would have been essentially a fatal criminal act. And and so that's where we kind of have to start shifting the focus towards one of more preventing uh, some of these social harms uh, than just talking strictly about, 
gangbangers in downtown Surrey. All right. Uh, We'll leave it there. Dr. Drummond, appreciate your time today and joining this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a break from talking about gun regulations and gun laws. Not finished with that conversation forever, not by a long shot, pardon the pun, but we'll take a break right now because there is another story I want to talk about. And on the surface, it looks like a great development. This is a development that a few days ago we learned a little bit more about. It is going to be built near the new Arbutus Skytrain station once that extension goes ahead and the new 99B line bus loot. It's a vacant lot in the 2000 block of West 7th Avenue and parts of West 8th Avenue. And when it was announced, uh, residents in that area, people nearby were told this is going to be a mixed use development. It's going to also have 140 units in it will be studio apartments, studio suites. They will be supporting adults, seniors, people with disabilities. And one of the keys here is for people who are experiencing or who are at risk of homelessness. And that is raising a few questions by some of the parents of children at a nearby school. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Charlene Kettlewell, a mother of uh, students at that school. Thanks so much, Charlene, for being with us today. Well, hi, Jill. Thank you very much. Certainly a change of pace for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we kind of uh, heard about this and thought, well, if you're available, let's talk about this today. So what is your main concern about this and the supportive housing that's been proposed for this site? Well, first, I want to say thank you for giving us a voice, giving me a voice. You know, I'm a mom of four children, you know, and they're growing up and blossoming at a beautiful little school in Kitsilano. And it also houses a preschool there. So you've got a a community of 400 children, okay, ages as young as three up until 12 go there. You know, and I believe in the basic rights of, you know, of of all humans, right? Of course, but when we all, let's let's perk up our ears a bit. Kids, kids, when you ask them and uh, what, you know, what they want and when you ask moms and dads what they want, um, you know, it's, you know, clean air and safety, um, a sense of community and belonging. And um, so when we heard about this project, first off, um, there's, there's, there's a few things that are alarming to us. And um, one is that our voice wasn't, wasn't incorporated into it. You know, the building plan was in place and, the, you know, the, the, you've seen the drawings. It's already it's already designed. Now that takes a lot of time to piece together, um, and our school wasn't consulted. This is 25 meters from the gates of our playground. Um, so um, I, I kind of, if you if you don't mind my pun, is I want to back up the bus a little bit and just let you know that um, there's another project that also is right in that you know in that area, right? The Broadway um, subway project. And our communication and our advocation for the safety of the community has been going on for 15 months. So having this opportunity to speak to you today is, is huge, huge for our community. Um, we want to let you know, first off, that we fully support the rapid transit expansion of Long Broadway. We, we have significant concerns about public safety issues for the station and the bus loop being only 25 meters from our school. Um, you know, there's going to be 3,500 people an hour during peak 
times, you know, being dropped off by diesel buses in that area. And yes, they are diesel. We've been told that they will not be electric. Um, so that alludes, to, that gets back to my point about clean air. Um, let's, and then moving on, um, our concern is that we have not been consulted and, and brought into the conversation. I mean, our doors are open, you know, lights are on, we're there. And um, we don't understand why we're not being brought into the conversation. Um, the response has been, we've let the city, TransLink, and the project know about our issues. Um, and they've, their response has been very slow and the plans are not safe enough currently for the children or the neighborhood and then and of course this is it's let's you know in perspective this is five years out this is going to happen so people maybe aren't in this alarming you know state about this right they're like oh well it'll get sorted out with time and such but if there's no conversation happening there's no conversation happening if there's no uh, you know um bringing us in uh, and, and allowing us to know like how we're able to affect the process or to how to make it safe for the kids. Moving on to the housing project, this one's arriving in 12 months, kind of like a, well, let's say an extended pregnancy. Um, we have, we understand fully about the housing crisis in Vancouver, and we, we ourselves actually support um, a women's shelter. I don't know, if, are you aware of that? Yes, uh, it's right next, yeah. So it's right next to the to the to the parish, and and we have an amazing relationship and are very supportive in our stance of of, of the situation. Um, it's what we're called to do um, as humans, anyways. Um, but we don't know enough about the detailed plan for this project as the as the details are coming forward. Um, you have said what you believe, um, and potentially from the website of BC Housing uh, as to what they say it's going to be. Um, but there have been other reports that um, it could be for the support of those that are, um, you know, suffering with mental health and substance abuse disorders. Uh, there's also, a, um, you know, evidence they say that it's going to be for those with with disabilities, right? And and oh, but then if that's the case, why are only five percent of the units being outfitted as accessible? There's just not enough information, and that's what frightens me as a mom. Like you laid it out for me, and you told me exactly what, and then I knew my response plan, right? Mm-hmm. I'd, know what, I'd know what to do, and I'd feel a bit better about the situation, but I don't like that they have a pattern of not consulting us, not sitting with us, you know, sort of passing the buck around, and then, and then announcing these beautiful things as, as wonderful solutions. And, and I certainly don't want to be put into the position where I'm being, um, and myself in the school is being put in the position of that we're opposed to any plans that would be better for humans, right? Right, that's, because some that's, some that's might not my position. Right, some might hear this though and think because we have seen in the past communities that have come out against supportive housing, modular housing, and some might hear this and think mm, this is you know th- these are parents of a of a school that don't want uh, shelter or they don't want supportive housing nearby. Uh, but it sounds like what you want is more consultation and more information. A hundred percent. I want our kids' safety valued. I want I want that to be. So when you present something, why is it that you're not presenting it hand in hand, one with the other, right? We have, we have a housing crisis, um, a homelessness crisis on our hands and, and, a, and a substance abuse crisis. This is very, very serious. But is it not equally the safety, like our, our children's safety, is that not valued equally? So why can't they present it hand in hand saying, you know, we've already spoken with the school 
we've already come up with a plan, right? We already, we know what's going to be monitored. We know X amount is going to be, you know, and, uh, you know, it's going to be limited to this amount in terms of those that are, will be using on the site. I mean, in 2017 in Langley, okay, there was a facility. Now this, this facility is going to have 140 units. Okay. It's going to be a high rise. It's a major housing unit in Langley. There was a situation, uh, you know, a similar uh, uh, project, although it only had 40 units. In this, in this uh, facility, 50, 53, north of 53% of the um, people that were going to be coming to this facility and using it were provided substances for treatment of their addiction while living there. That's over half of the people that were there were being provided. And I, and I know that is a natural part of, and, I, and I'm, I'm 100% for, you know, safe injection sites. And per, these are, you know, these are personal feelings, right? Please don't get my feelings mixed up with the, the stance of the school. It is really important that I, that I don't besmirch anyone. Or um, this, is a, this is a mom of four children, ages 5 to 12, that are a school that just want our voice to be considered equally and potentially before setting this up um, and promoting it. Right. Were you given any chance or did you see the plans or were the parents of the school given any opportunity to see this before it was approved? No. Right. And, and that's and that's you would think being part of the community and being the school so close to the site that it would at least be part of the conversation. Yeah. I mean, we're we're practically on the site. You know, there just happens to be a road in between. Right. Um, and I mean, our, our children park all over the, you know, all over children walk up. There's not only that, but there's a public playground right across the street on the, the kitty corner from the school that the entire community uses, right? What is that going to look like in, you know, you know, a couple of years from now, it might not be used. There's also going to be a shadow, you know, there's wind tunnels and there's shadow casts and all those kinds of things. And there's architectural considerations and all those kinds of things as well. But for me, when it comes to, you know, bringing my children and dropping them off and providing that sense of, of community when they're going to be sitting in the library and it's on the, it's on um, the second floor of the school, but it's a double ceiling and it's our learning center for children that need, you know, supportive learning. Um, it's going to look straight across at this facility as opposed to currently what's there as a park. And so there's just, I mean, we're, you know, if let's taking aesthetics out of it and we're talking about a, a pattern and a history of non-consultation where a, a transit hub with diesel vehicles, we're talking, we're not talking electric diesel dropping off 3,500 people per hour right across right across the street from the school that presents its own risks. And these, they weren't consulting us in this, that process. Do you think they're going to consult? You know what I mean? Like, are they going to bring this into the conversation? Do you think there should be, know. there should be rules then as far as buffer zones or how far say transit stations or supportive hmm. housing facilities are located from schools? Well, there are for cannabis stores and for liquor stores, right? Mm-hmm. You've got, you've got, what is it now? Depending on the community, I know it's municipally run, right? So the city should be able to, to respond to that. Um, but I believe it's something like 500 meters for 25. Like it's, and the other thing is, if there ends up being individuals, 
let's talk about the individuals that are there for support, okay? And they're trying to get over a dangerous addiction and heal from that. But there is a BC liquor store within a two-minute walk of that facility. And it's a housing complex, so they're going to be living there. And there's a cannabis store within a two-minute walk. Not that cannabis, I mean, anyways, I don't want to get onto that conversation. But, you know, are we doing, are we really thinking this through? In terms of location, like I, I don't know. I, I thought we were in the age of information and just, you know, sort of enlightenment and especially going through what we have been. Let's make sure that we've checked all of our avenues all and right. certainly consult the community. I don't think anyone would want um, negative things happening 25 meters from their children's recess. All right, Charlene, we'll have to leave it there for today. Uh, We are going to continue looking at this, but I appreciate you making some time uh, to chat with us today. Thank you so much for joining the program. Thanks for letting me have some mom activism. (laughs) All right. Challenging time.